The Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast features people from the real estate community sharing real stories about their struggles, pains, and even losses during their own real estate journey. We share these real experiences so you can learn from them and build a successful journey of your own. Now, here's your host, Cody Lewis, one of the managing partners at Vindu Capital, located in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited to have you all back, but I'm even more excited for our guest today. She is the owner of JJ Capital Investments. Jennifer Joyce, how are you, Jennifer? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well, Cody. How are you? I am fantastic. Really enjoyed all of our conversation leading up to here. We, I finally was like, we got to hit record. We were just going on and on about all the stuff that's going on in the market right now, which I love, but super excited to have you on. Really excited to hear what you got to tell our audience today. But before we jump into that, we always love to start out with a good origin story. So if you don't mind, for those that maybe are seeing your face and hearing your voice for the first time, tell us a little bit about where you're from, how you got into real estate, and what you find yourself doing these days. Absolutely. So I'm originally from Plano, Texas. I'm actually second generation real estate. So I grew up in the business with my school teacher mom. She kept every house she ever lived in. And she either owner financed it or rented it. So that's how I spent all my summers is doing the maintenance, the trash outs, the lease ups and things like that. So became an adult and pretty much was fearless about real estate. And like most people started with single family, then moved up to small multifamily. I was owner operator that whole time. And about five years ago, we stumbled onto syndication. That was a game changer for us. We, we realized that we could leverage other people's money. And we could do things collectively and and not feel like we're on an island all the time running our own portfolio. So, you know, in those in the last five years, we've acquired over 2,500 doors actively. We run a hundred million dollar blind fund and also a three portfolio fund on top of that. So having a lot of fun and getting ready for the next season of the economic cycle. Yeah, I know we've talked a lot about that kind of in the background and, and what's to come. And I think a lot of people are speculating, but I think from what you you and I have talked about, I think you have a really good pulse on what's going on. And, you know, listen, we're all waiting to see what happens, but I think we're all patiently ready to pounce when something does happen for something like that. But Jennifer, I, I'd love to sit and chat about the economic climate, the market and what you think. But today I want to focus a little bit on something different and, and with you, which is the unsuccessful part of, or any unsuccessful parts that have gotten you to where you are today and helped teach you some lessons. So you can teach myself and our audience some lessons as well. So what comes to mind from your career that you can help educate us today, if you don't mind? Oh my gosh, there's so much. I think, you know, probably the most glaring one I can think of right now is We run into a particular county in the state of Texas where you can protest taxes. And what we didn't anticipate for in that scenario is that they were going to be two years behind on their protesting process. So what happens when you can't protest your taxes between May and December is your lender is actually going to act like you're all the way up at that higher appreciated value. And they're going to escrow that amount of money from you that entire time. Now let's add a second year to that where they think your values increased again and you're still protesting not just one year, but two. And all the while the lender is escrowing the higher amount while you fight with the county on the appraisal. And so, you know, that can really hurt cash flows. And so mm-hmm. then you have to make up for it in your business plan elsewhere while you're paying this much higher tax rate that eventually will come back to you 
but not till the lawyers hash it all out. And, you know, you have to be prepared for things like that. Things in business don't go perfectly every single month like clockwork. And I know our investors look for cash flow that's consistent, but they're investing in businesses. And businesses are cyclical, they're seasonal, and they peak and they valley. And so that's one of the things that we've run into in that particular county. And I own quite a few doors in that county and it unfolded over time. So as we continued to purchase there, we had more and more properties that ran into that scenario. Now, the takeaway from that is then you start building that into your underwriting. So if you know you're going to have up to a two-year protest process, then you have to have reserves set aside that are just really a rainy day fund specifically for property tax protest. And so you're able to afford paying the higher taxes today and getting refunds tomorrow, which honestly, you know, the dollar's not as valuable tomorrow. And I think those appraisal districts know that. So they're having a lot of fun making us wait two years. Well, I'm, I'm sure that can cause a ton of headaches. And if you have other investors that are coming to that market that maybe don't know that, I'm sure it's even, even tougher for you as an investor because they may come in a little bit better or more aggressive on their pricing than what you can because you're pricing in the, the cost and having to escrow that amount until you, you get it fixed on the back end. But tell me, what, what led y'all? Did y'all know that kind of stuff going in or how did y'all find that out about that particular county and having to go through that tax process? Only, only by operating in that county did we discover that. And of course, it's you know along the lines of the pandemic slowed down the courts and all the supply chain issues and, and weird schedules where everybody had to work from home, even post-pandemic, caused the court systems to not have all the players in the building to keep things moving. So it's not something that you could ask a friend, hey, have you experienced this in this county? It's another just side effect of the pandemic that showed up where they were using it as an excuse to slow down the court system, right? So it's a new normal for that county, but I don't see it going any, away anytime soon. I see it getting worse. Well, and, and I think it goes back to, as, as we look at all of these different underwriting models, whether you're the active participant in the, in the group, or if you're looking to invest passively, understanding that the underwriting model, and to your point earlier, it is not the holy grail. It's, you're not going to operate to that degree you know, specifically, there's going to be ebbs and flows and you're going to have to give some here and take some there. That's just a guide. It, you know, you have to operate the business. It's not an ATM machine. You have to operate it and you got to, you got to do the best you can. And when things come up, you got to, you got to move as an entrepreneur, you got to figure it out. You know, I think that's always a good warning for those that are, if you're looking at underwriting, especially if you're looking to co-GP, GP, or even passively invest, if the, the operator is telling you, this is, we have to hit these marks based on our underwriting to make this deal work. Well, then it's probably not going to work because no one hits those numbers specifically. I think a lot of people got bailed out by the recent market over the last few years, but no one hits that operating memorandum exactly to the T anytime, I would say. Yeah. And you can take so, it a step further and say, well, in this environment, some of these, these multifamily transactions are going full cycle in maybe two years. Well, if you're two years into a property tax protest, that's still showing on your tax records when you're trying to sell the property. That higher tax rate hurts the purchase price that your buyer is going to offer. And so if you can't clean it up in the amount of time you want to sell it in, then you have a secondary problem where you're leaving money on the table that your investors could have had if you could get it through the court system. But we have no control over that. So right. then the operators are left to say, should we hold an extra year 
or take a, advantage of the appreciation today that we can grab. And I'm sure that's a balancing act that you have to decide on as a group and you know what's the best approach. And I'm sure it's property by property, not just across the board blanket. So as y'all have scaled and y'all have y'all have done some fantastic things, what other challenges have y'all run into that you've learned from thus far? Once you go under contract, you are going to close. We had a property that was already distressed. And then we were supposed to close the week after Valentine's last year. Well, in the state of Texas, the entire state went through what we call the Texas freeze or winter apocalypse on Valentine's. And so the entire state shut down. People didn't have electricity, water, sewer, gas, all kinds of problems. And that property had over 100 units of pipe burst damage the week before our closing. And it wasn't at the stage where you could say, oh, never mind, I don't want to buy it. You still have to buy this property. And so what we had to negotiate, which took us a couple extra weeks and closing got delayed, is we negotiated for the seller to help facilitate an insurance claim with the buyer. So they were going to get paid their emergency mitigation repairs that happened immediately. And all the rest of the claim money was going to come to us. Well, we didn't anticipate on on facilitating 100 units through a repair process that needed to happen overnight. However, we had to pivot, change our entire business plan and include that in there. Luckily, we, we thought quick enough to raise an additional amount of money. So we opened up the syndication again. We raised additional funds to just help with working capital around an insurance claim. And we had not shared the true cash on cash with our investors that the property was going to have because the numbers were so good on the original distress deal that we, we actually lowered them a little bit in our webinar so they didn't look so scary or too good to be true for the investors. So mm-hmm. by increasing the size of the syndication, nobody got hurt in that scenario. And we still knew there was insurance dollars coming. And so really, a lot of this stuff is pivot, come up with, wrap a new business plan around the new problem that you couldn't foresee ahead of time. And so what we were able to do is raise that additional money So we could immediately start repairing all the insurance damage after our building consultants documented everything for the buyers and then immediately brought all those units online. Anyway, we knew we already had 30% vacant. Now it was up to, I think, 48% vacant by the time we took ownership and we had to move as fast as we possibly could. And we got it to 90% occupancy in seven months. So we worked our tails off. And that additional yeah. capital really helped. We could have also had the we could have had the Texas freeze the week after closing and done the same thing. We could have raised after we closed. So that's an opportunity for people as well. If they think that they're they're done with their syndication, you can actually talk to your attorneys about reopening it for a situation like that. I don't know that you would want to do that six months or later or 18 months later. That's more of a capital call, but this was just timed so perfectly. We pivoted, we overraised, and we executed on the on the new plan immediately. Well, and I love the fact that you talked about, and we've had a couple other people on the show talk about it as well. The idea that as an entrepreneur and as an operator, you have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to make changes on the fly. For those listening that maybe are trying to get into it or thinking about getting into it, whether it's passively or actively, 
what is your process or what is the team's process when something like that, a curveball is presented to you guys? Wh- what kind of process do you all go through to think through and try to figure out what's the right pivot move to make in those types of situations? Really, it's almost like being a surgeon in an OR. You have to be the calmest person in the room. So if your operator at the top is not a very calm person, they're probably going to do more emotional responses versus logical responses. We actually slow everything down when it gets chaotic like that. So, you know, we just take the information in waves and we try to slow it down. But once the plan is in place, that's when you go like a NASCAR with the jet fuel. Before that, you want it to be very, very, very slow, but you also have to make decisions quickly. That's probably the overarching answer is the ownership group has to know how to keep decisions moving. And one of the ways through all of the dysfunction we've seen behind the scenes in ownership groups is we always now structure our ownership teams with a voting tiebreaker because Mm -hmm. and no decision is a decision and it hurts the investors. But making a decision, even if it's not the best decision, keeps the needle moving forward and the investors uh, for the long run will benefit from that. So we have figured that out through dysfunctional partnerships or dare I say bad partnerships that a tiebreaker solves for a lot of tension behind the scenes. And you can keep things moving even if you don't always agree with those decisions, you're still keeping the money moving. And well, that, I would imagine a lot of those conversations early on you had about, you know, who, who's the tie-breaking vote and any discussion or hopefully not, but maybe argument around who's the tiebreaker and how do you tie-break, those are had up front. So when you're presented with a challenge, you don't have to have that. So your emotions may or may not be running high already because of this challenge in front of you, then having to negotiate who's the tiebreaker, you've already done that work ahead of time you know that, hey, when it comes to a vote, we're all going to vote. And if it's even, here's the tiebreaker. Let's move on. And whether we like the plan or not, or you agree or, or what, you move forward, like you said, and keep things rolling. I love that. Yeah. The entire team has agreed to the structure, not that a critical decision. So as long as you have two out of three or three out of five, yay or nay, that is the decision. And everybody signed up for that model So they can't really argue the model in the moment. And it's interesting because depending on the crisis, some people get highly emotional, some people get highly fearful, and some people are just calm. And it changes who those people are. It's never the same. It depends on what the circumstances. So you've got level-headed people in that moment to keep it pressing forward, which is really nice. Yeah, I like that. And and I would probably throw out there too, if you're a highly emotional reaction of person, probably good to have a partner that's more even keeled than you because you, you got to have that balance. Not to say that you don't each have your strengths, but if you are a little bit more high stress, tend to make more emotional decisions, you got to have that balance to, to make sure that you're moving forward. Um, Jennifer, I, I think those are incredible lessons. Like I mentioned when you first joined, like I've loved watching what you guys are doing. Love the conversations thus far, and and I think that's probably a good enough spot as ever to wrap up because th- there are a lot of golden nuggets in there. I would highly encourage anybody watching or listening go back and listen to those because if you're looking to scale or you're looking to get into it, Jennifer makes a lot of great points that'll help you out and get there a lot faster. 
for those, maybe Jennifer, that want to work with you, continue to maybe learn from you and even invest with you in the future, where's the best place people can find you at? I would encourage them to go to our website, which is www.jjcapitalinvestments.com. I think uh, there's an about us page that has my cell phone number on. We're very open in this industry. We share nuggets all the time behind the scenes. And so feel like you should feel like you should reach out because there's no, there's no big wall up between peers. We're here to help. Yeah. I love it. And I'll echo that. I mean, like I've mentioned several times, Jennifer has been amazing to talk to and shared a bunch of time and insights with me. And I, I very much appreciate the conversations both on and off recording. So we can't thank you enough for being on today, Jennifer. Thank you, Cody. Absolutely. And hey, thanks everyone for listening and watching at home. We'll see everyone next time. You've been listening to the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast with Cody Lewis. Be sure to subscribe today on your favorite podcasting platform so you can catch every episode of the Real Estate Unsuccess Stories podcast.